Kings, chapter 18, Elijah has turned off the rain because he's upset with Ahab, who is the king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel. So he's turned off the rain, and it's been three and a half years. So God sends him back to talk to Ahab, and he's now fixing to turn the rain on, but he's got a problem with the prophets of Baal. When Jezebel married Ahab and she came down, she brought her own religious organization with her. And one of the things that's going on here, sort of link, if you will, with what's going on in the United States, I don't know whether you've been paying attention, for example, and this is just an example, the current thing with Indiana that's going on right now. Basically, Indiana passed a law that mirrors the federal law. So the Indiana law is essentially no different. But what the sodomite lobby wants is they want an issue. So they pitched a fit, intimidated everybody into doing what it is that they want to have done. Well, Jezebel is doing the same thing. Remember, she's from uh, Lebanon. In other words, she's not an Israelite. She's a foreign woman. So when she comes down, she brings her own priests with her. And what her priests have been doing is basically the same thing as the sodomite lobby has been doing. They've been intimidating people, and they've been pushing, and they've been increasing the reach of Baal and oppressing the worshipers of Jehovah. So when we get to this business on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah is going to stand up and there's going to be 450 priests of Baal and 400 priests of Eshtaroth. So you got 950 priests of foreign gods and a crowd of Israelites. And so Elijah is going to stand up and says, all right, who are you going to worship? And everybody is silent because they have been intimidated. In other words, I don't want to stand out of the crowd as being the one who worships Jehovah because the dominant culture right now is the worship of Baal. And oh, by the way, the queen is really, really nasty and vindictive. So that's sort of what's going on. And you see the same thing happening, as I say, here today in the United States, where you have a, a state that passes a perfectly reasonable law that is mirrors the federal law and the sodomite lobby just decides to pitch a fit and oh by the way Arkansas passed a similar law today silence nobody said a word yet so this whole thing is manufactured outrage for the purpose of intimidation and that's what's going on with Baal and Jezebel they are a minority just like the sodomite lobby is a minority, but they make a lot of noise and it just doesn't seem worth it because nobody will stand up with you. So as you're reading this story, think of the priests of Baal as the gay and lesbian lobby. Think of Jezebel as Hillary Clinton. And think of Elijah as this lone prophet who stands up in the face of all of this and says, stop. Now, read it with that idea in mind, and it makes perfect sense. So now we're in 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? 
And the actual Hebrew is, how long will you keep hopping between two branches? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Nobody wants to stand up and have an example made of him in front of 850 pagan priests, who, by the way, Jezebel has in her pocket. So anything you say here is going to go straight back to Jezebel, and you're going to be the target of civil rights suit or anti-discrimination suit, or they're going to pick at your business and nobody's going to buy your sheep or any of those kinds of things. That's what happens. So that's why everybody is quiet. We'll come up here, we'll watch this showdown, but we ain't taking a side until we see something definitive happen. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but all his prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Jehovah, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. In other words, if God shows up to this match here, then I guess we'll get a little courage. But if God doesn't show up, then you're on your own there, prophet of God. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah is obviously taunting them. And part of that is by way of building up the courage of the Israelites. In other words, I'm standing here and I'm mocking these people and making them look like a fool. Why are you afraid of them? And oh, by the way, in our politics today, when you get a politician that stands up to them and just looks them right in the face and says, they back down. And the primary example is Scott Walker of Wisconsin. They tried all of this stuff on him. And he just looked at him and said, no. They tried to recall him. He's won three elections in the last, what, three years? And the way to beat these folks is not to apologize to them. Because if you apologize, they just demand more. So what you need to do when confronted with this kind of stuff is, sorry, I'm not playing your game. So 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And again, the idea of working yourself into a frenzy and in that process, lacerating your body is by way of demonstrating your sincerity and conviction. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. I don't know what altar this is on Mount Carmel, because that's where they are. 
So it isn't an altar at Dan or an altar at Lachish where they've got the, the golden calves, and it's certainly not in Jerusalem. It's about halfway up the country. I have no idea who built this altar originally, under what circumstances, but apparently there was an old Israelite altar there, which he then repairs. Verse 31. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of sea. And a sea is, is about seven liters, so we're talking 14 liters, which would be not quite three gallons. So not a big trench. Figure the altar that's got a bull on it's going to be probably vicinity the size of this table. And a ditch around there that can hold two or three gallons is, is not a deep ditch. Verse 33. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. What he's doing, obviously here, first off, he has called out the priests of Baal and said, all right, prove it. They do their best and they fail. So at this point, they're standing there with egg on their faces, blood on their heads, because they are unable to get their God to perform, to rise to the challenge. And in that, they are not even as good as the Egyptian magicians were at the time of Moses. Because remember, when Moses went before Pharaoh and did the business with the snake and, and water into blood and, and so forth, the magicians of Pharaoh were able to duplicate those signs. The prophets of Baal can't even get their Zippo lit. Nothing. And so in that sense, he's embarrassed them. Now the next thing he does is he sort of adds insult to injury because he wants to make sure, A, that nobody's going to be able to claim that he has somehow cheated. In other words, he's sort of slipped a a live coal in there and it's been sort of cooking along and, and suddenly burst into flame. So what he's doing is adding insult to injury by drowning the thing in water to demonstrate that not only am I not cheating, but my God is so much more powerful than the thing you call God that soaked wood is not going to make any difference. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Jehovah, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Jehovah, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Jehovah, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Again, by doing this, the expectation is that their hearts will turn away from Baal and back to Jehovah. 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Then all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Jehovah, he is God. And by the way, we use this in our Yom Kippur liturgy. Jehovah Huha Elohim is what it is in Hebrew. The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. 
and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, I don't know what happened to the prophets of Asherah, because remember, there's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and theoretically, they were all called up. Don't know what's happened to them. It's basically being cast as a contest between Baal and Jehovah. This is, of course, going to naturally annoy Jezebel. So down to verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. He said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Jezreel is obviously a, a place, which is the, the plain that is north of the Carmel Mountains and goes east to west in Israel. So Elijah has turned the rain back on and has told Ahab, you need to get back home because your chariot is going to be bogged down pretty quick. And you all remember maybe you don't remember, but I'll remind you. When Deborah fought with the Syrians in this same place, the Syrians had chariots, and the Israelites were foot infantry. And what happened is Jehovah made it rain on the plain of Jezreel, and the chariots got bogged down in the mud. And since the chariots were no longer mobile, the Israelite infantry was able then to move among the chariots and the horses and slaughter the Syrians because the Syrians didn't have the mobility and the shock power of their chariots anymore. Same place, exactly. And so what Elijah says to Ahab is, you remember what happened to, to the Assyrians with Deborah? About to happen again, you probably ought to get out of here with your chariot. Of course, Ahab would have known the same history and realized that the place turns into mud and his chariot is going to be no good in just a little while. Elijah then runs with the chariot and gets back to Jezreel at the same time. Now, now down to chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So in the first place, let's sort of back up. Beersheba is in Judah, where Jezebel has no authority. Jezebel is the queen of Israel, the northern kingdom. So when Elijah flees south into Judah, he is out of her territory. That's sort of thing one. A couple of things going on here. And you sort of have to strip out the biblical hyperbole. You all remember the Gulf War 
where you had Baghdad Bob saying, this is going to be the mother of all battles and all that kind of stuff as the 3rd Infantry Division was rolling past his window. It's a way of speaking. So for her to say, tomorrow at this time, you're going to be room temperature just like all those prophets, is not meant to be taken literally. It is hyperbolic. However, what she is saying is, and this is a biblical principle, miracles don't last. Right now, you guys are on a sugar high, and you're all pumped up and excited, and you've had this miracle, and all these prophets have been destroyed, and you're just fired up. But everybody's going to go back to work on Tuesday. And when that happens, and all the emotion is gone, I'm still going to be here, and I'm still going to be queen, and I'm going to nail you. That's what she's saying. Not that it's necessarily going to happen in the next 24 hours. And sort of thing too is you are at your most vulnerable coming down off of a high. And he is excited and that's over. And he's just run several miles back there and he's exhausted. He's built an altar all by himself. Doing an entire bull by yourself is hard work. So He's sort of on a manic high as the fire comes down from heaven and he says, you know, seize the prophets of Baal and take them down. I mean, this is an emotional high. When you come down off of that, you sort of swing past equilibrium and down. And so at this point, he is no longer in that emotional high place and he's in a low place. And the other part of the lesson here is when you have just had a spiritual or physical triumph, you need to be very cautious because at that point you are vulnerable until you come back up and regain your equilibrium. So the idea of him showing up all flushed with triumph and her looking at him and saying, I'm going to get you. As I say, the message there is everybody's going back to work during the week and all this emotion is going to drain away. I'm still the queen and you're toast. He, he then beats feet out of there and heads south to get out of Israel because he wants to be in Judah instead. I don't know what the significance of his leaving his servant there in Beersheba. I, I just don't know the answer to that. Chapter 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So in other words, you picked me up, you made me a prophet, you sent me there to confront the king, and I failed, I ran away. That's sort of the subtext there of, I am no better than my fathers. You picked me up, you made me a prophet, you stood me up in front of the king, and then I wilted in front of the gal and ran, instead of completing the job that I think I should have done. So a little bit of remorse, self-pity, Guilt, shame. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And I think he's sleeping the sleep of exhaustion, quite frankly. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. So he's exhausted. He's fallen into sleep. Gets awakened, fed, and then collapses right back and goes back to sleep. So he's, he's working off exhaustion right now. Verse 7. 
And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he starts off up in the Jezreel Valley. He flees all the way down the length of Israel to Beersheba. Then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness, and that's where the angel picks him up. So he is somewhere a day's journey south of Beersheba. Angel picks him up, and then 40 days he heads over to the mountain in what is now Saudi Arabia. Verse 9, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets by the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take my life away. And he said, he being God, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, so what we have here is a chiasm again. So what we're going to have is a repeat of the conversation that started back in verse 9. It'll be word for word. Jehovah says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take away my life. So that is word for word a repetition of what happened back up in verses 9 and 10. And of course, one of the things we're all have learned about chiasms is they are a way to point you at something significant. So, what are they pointing us to? Give you my take on it, which is not any better than yours, just mine. We started off, and he's laying down somewhere south of Beersheba, having a pity party. I'm no better than my father's. Kill me. I've failed. Run away. God picks him up, dusts him off, gives him a couple of warm meals, and sends him 40 days back to Horeb, or Sinai, which is where Israel's covenant with the Lord was first ratified. Then we have the chiasm, where the Lord asks him, what are you doing here? And he gives his piteous answer. Then we have this series of events. You have a mighty wind, you have an earthquake, and you have fire. And it says that Jehovah was not in those things. What are those things? Who has he just defeated? Baal. What is Baal? Baal is the god of nature. He's worshipped as the God who controls all of these natural processes. So you have these mighty demonstrations, and God is not in those. Not that God can't do those, because 
several verses back, he in fact did have fire come down and God did that. So God is capable of doing that, but that's not how God wants to get your attention. And oh, by the way, what happened at Sinai? Fire and, and the voice of God coming down the hill. And, and what was Israel's reaction? So what you have is Elijah coming back to the place where God made the covenant with Israel. You have, in a sense, God manifesting himself to Elijah in much the same way as he manifested himself to Israel. Fire on top of the mountain, earthquakes, big, dramatic, booming voice. And what it says this time is that's not where God is. And oh, by the way, those are also manifestations of what Baal is believed to be able to accomplish. Now, we've just demonstrated that he can't. It doesn't exist. So he can't manifest those things. But people who worship Baal attribute to him those kinds of natural phenomena. And so what God is saying is, the whole nation was standing here and we went through this and they didn't, I mean, they basically had a brown toga moment and said, Moses, you go talk to him because we're not going to stand here and listen to him. We'll die. Come back, recreate that event, and this time God explicitly says, I'm not in that stuff. And then finally you have the quiet voice, which is God speaking to you gently over a lifetime as opposed to thunderously in one huge event. And remember we said earlier that miracles don't convert people. Miracles wear off. You have a tremendous miracle on Shabbat, but you got to go to work on Monday and you, you know, you got to pick up tortillas and you got to drive to Nebraska and all that kind of stuff and the miracle fades. It does. So what God is saying here is that all of these dramatic demonstrations that you have just gone through are not the thing that is going to be effective in getting people to listen to me. It's a much longer, quieter process. So we're now all the way down to 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel-Mehoah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. As near as I can tell, he doesn't do any of this except Elisha. I don't find where he anoints Hazael. I mean, he may do it and it just didn't get recorded. Same with uh, Yehu. Verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing the twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Do we know what tribe Elisha is from? The reason I ask is he's plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. And the symbolism there is fairly obvious. And he himself is with the last yoke. So I'm just wondering if he's a Benjaminite. Verse 19 again. So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing the twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. I'm assuming it's his tallit. 
And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Which is odd. I have no idea what to do with that. I have no idea why he says, Go back again, what have I done to you? Just don't know what that's all about, other than he just may be a curmudgeon. Verse 21. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. I don't know how old a man Elisha is. I don't know if he is a young man and the 12 yoke of oxen belong to his dad. I mean, it would be sort of like wrecking the T-bird. Now, if he is an adult and this is his stuff, then that's one thing. If he is a youth and he's out there plowing and all of the oxen and the yokes and all that kind of stuff, which is all expensive stuff, belongs to the family, that puts an entirely different character on it. What he is essentially doing symbolically is saying, I have left this way of life. I am not coming back to this way of life, and especially not if I've just wrecked Dad's tractor. <laughs> you know? But no, no matter what, I'm not coming back. And so he's cast his lot with Elijah. Other than that, I have no idea. All right, now where are we going to go next? I'm going to skip over Ahab's wars with Syria and so forth. And we'll pick it up with the theft of the vineyard, where Jezebel frames Naboth, gets him killed, and steals his vineyard. And then after that, Elijah comes back into the picture. So that's where we'll pick it up next time. Somebody like closing prayer?